0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Ababa Berhani. Ababa is a PhD student at University College Dublin. Ababa, welcome to the TwiML AI podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me,
0: Sam. Uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. We had an opportunity to meet in person uh, after a long while interacting on Twitter at the most recent NeurIPS conference, in particular, the Black and AI workshop, where you not only presented your paper, Algorithmic Injustices Toward uh, Relational Ethics, uh, but you won best paper there. And so I'm looking forward to digging into that and uh, some other topics. But before we do that, I would love to hear you kind of share a little bit about your background. And I will mention for folks that are hearing the sirens in the background, while I mentioned that you are from University College Dublin, you happen to be in New York now at the AIES conference in association with AAAI, and uh, as folks might know, it's hard to avoid sirens and construction in New York City. So uh, just consider that background or mood, mood ambiance, background sounds. So (laughs) your background. Yes, yes. (laughs) How did you get started working in AI ethics? So my
1: background is uh, in cognitive science and particularly um, a part of cognitive science called embodied cognitive science, which is which has roots you know uh, in, in cybernetics, in systems thinking. the idea is to focus on 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 the on the social, on the cultural, on the historical, and kind of to view cognition in continuity with the world with with historical backgrounds and all that as opposed to you know your your traditional approach to cognition, which uh, just treats cognition as something located in the brain or something formalizable, something that can be uh, computed. So, yeah, so that's my background. Even uh, during my master's, I I, I lean towards, you know, the, the AI side of um, cognitive science. The more I uh, delve into it, the more I much more attracted to the, to the ethics side to, Uh, you know, injustices to the social issues. And uh, so the more the PhD goes on, the more I find myself in in the, the, the ethics side.
0: Was there a particular point that you realized that you were really excited about the ethics part in particular? Or did it just evolve for you?
1: I think it just evolved. So when I started out, I, at the end of my master's and at the start of the PhD, my idea is that, you know, we have this new, relatively new school uh, way of thinking, which is embodied cogsci, which I quite like very much because it emphasizes, you know, ambiguities and messiness and, uh, contingencies as opposed to, you know, drawing clean boundaries and, um, so the idea is, yes, I like the idea of redefining cognition as something relational, something inherently social, and something that is continually impacted and influenced by other people and the, the technologies we use. So the technology aspect, the technology end was my interest. So uh, initially the idea is, yes, technology is constitutes aspect of aspect of our cognition. You have the, the famous um, 1998 thesis by Andy Clark and David Chalmers, The Extended Mind, where they claimed, you know, the iPhone is an extension of your mind. Uh, so you, you can think of it that way. And um, I was kind of advancing the same line of thought. But the more I delved into it, the more I saw... Yes, uh, digital technology, whether it's, uh, you know, ubiquitous computing, such as face recognition systems on the street uh, or your phone, uh, whatever. Yes, it does impact and it does continually shape and reshape our cognition and what it means to exist in the world. But what became more and more clear to me is that not everybody is impacted equally. Uh, The more... um, privileged you are, the the more in control of uh, you are as to, you know, what can influence you and uh, what you can avoid. So that's where I become more and more involved with the ethics of uh, computation and its its, uh, impact on cognition.
0: The notion of privilege is something that flows throughout the work that you presented at uh, Black and AI, the Algorithmic Injustices paper, and this idea, this construct of relational ethics. What is relational ethics and what are you getting at with it?
1: Yeah. So relational ethics is actually not a new thing. Uh, A lot of people have theorized about it and uh, have written about it. But the the way I'm approaching it, the way I'm using it is, uh, it's I guess it kind of springs from uh, this frustration that for many folk who talk about AI ethics or or fairness or justice, uh, most of it comes down to you know constructing this neat formulation of fairness or uh, mathematical calculation of, of uh, who should be included and uh, who should be excluded, what kind of data do we need, that sort of stuff. So for me, relational ethics is kind of let's let's um, leave that for a little bit and let's zoom out and see the bigger picture. And instead of using technology to solve the problems that emerge from technology itself, so which which means centering technology, let's instead center the people that are people especially people that are uh, disproportionately impacted by you know the the limitations or the problems that arise with the development and implementation of technology so uh, there is a, a robust uh, research in you can call it ai fairness or algorithmic injustice and the the pattern is that the more you are at the at the bottom of the intersectional level. That means the further away from you are from you know your stereotypical white cisgendered male, uh, the more the the bigger the negative impacts are on you. Whether it's uh, classification or categorization, or whether it's being uh, scaled and scored for. Uh, by hiring algorithms or looking for housing or anything like that, uh, the, the more you move away from that stereotypical category, you know, the status quo, the more, the heavy the, the impact is on you. So the idea of relational ethics is kind of to 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 think from that perspective, to, to take that as a starting point. So these are the groups or these are the individuals that are... Um, much more likely to be impacted so in order to put them at at advantage or in order to protect their welfare what do we need to do so it's the idea is to start from there and then ask further questions instead of you know saying uh, here um, we have this technology or we have this set of uh, algorithms or calculations how do we uh, apply them or how do we then use them to to you know for a better or a fairer outcome
0: and sometimes the answer you arrive at is that a particular technology shouldn't exist in a given form
1: yeah right exactly exactly so I think one of the the downsides of um, obsessively working on um, some matrices or some uh, equations on fairness is that you forgot, you forget the, to ask in the first place, do we, should we even do this in the first place? And I think uh, some people have articulated this really well. Uh, you can think of this in terms of the, uh, you know, face recognition systems that are becoming very normalized and common, especially in the States. Do, do you feed uh, your face recognition algorithm with uh, diverse data in order so that it recognizes everybody equally? Or do you stop and think, do we actually need face recognition systems in the first place? Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a question that, you know, honestly, I have trouble with in a lot of ways because I think there are certainly problematic uses of facial recognition but often the question is posed or the assertion is made that you know we shouldn't use the technology or we should you know i guess you know it's not uncommon to to hear people kind of take this position of hey we can't put the genie back in the bottle and you know i think on some levels i get that that you know maybe that's a cop out but in other ways it's like pragmatic how do you balance the Idealism that I think is probably core to the approach you're trying to take with uh, pragmatism that recognizes what is already happening and and the way technology tends to develop and evolve.
1: I guess my um, approach, at least in in the paper I presented uh, at Neurips, is that. Um, If your starting point really is the welfare of, uh, you know, the most disadvantaged, then I don't know how that that cashes out with pragmatism or uh, even with the the whole idea of fairness. uh, Because for most approaches to fairness, whether it's explicitly laid out or whether it's implicitly implied, the idea is it's very utilitarian uh, in a sense you have mm-hmm. uh, you 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 aspire to to arrive at you know the the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people so which really doesn't work for for if you are if you are from a disadvantaged group or if you are a minority because you will never. You you are not a. You are a minority. You are not a majority in the first place. So, any solutions that aspire to please the majority will always have uh, negative consequences, and it just doesn't work. So, that's that's the the struggle with uh, when you want to prioritize the needs and the welfare of the least privileged and. Uh, on the other hand, some form of pragmatism or what's based for the majority or you know the the greater the whole society that's a tension that's probably that will always exist probably.
0: And so that's at the heart of the this idea of relational uh, in a sense. it's you know pragmatic relative to who
1: exactly. but also, you have other other face recognition might still be still ripe still open to so much controversy uh, but you have other examples such as uh, you know facebook recently got a patent for um socioeconomic group classification of their users mm-hmm. and uh, they haven't said much about how where they are going to apply it or how they are going to use it but you know, tools like that, you can see it it's insidious and anything, it's very, very unlikely anything positive or anything good will come out of it, especially for users, for people uh, whose socioeconomic uh, status is, uh, you know, from from um, a really poor background. So the idea of, I guess, relational ethics as, as well as Questioning, do we need these tools in the first place? It's also thinking about, you know, the bigger picture of what automation, whether it's uh, job applications or uh, whether it's uh, housing or whether it's insurance, it's what it's doing to, to society and uh, what kind of values are we prioritizing and uh, embracing in the process so it's kind of thinking of ethics more of more as as a habit as kind of constantly thinking of what kind of society we want to live in as opposed to thinking of i have this piece of uh, tool or this piece of of equipment and how do, how do I make it fair or how do I twitch with it or work it to, to find that balance.
0: You mentioned earlier the, you know, that a lot of fairness is thinking about data bias and accommodating for data bias. You know, setting aside the issue of whether the thing that you're trying to address, you know, is something that should be done at all, that you know, the issue of data bias is kind of just one small piece of the overall fairness puzzle. How do you th- think broadly about kind of the different aspects of AI fairness and AI ethics? Do you have a categorization or framework or, you know, way of thinking about it that you found helpful?
1: Yeah. So this is actually at at the heart of the whole uh, relational ethics, trying to to reframe the whole idea of what ethics is. So because, as you said, a lot of people working on AI ethics really are about, you know, whether it's explainability or calculating fairness or justice, it really is usually lost in the fine grain details. So um, it's not something implementable that I provide, but it's about kind of really zooming out and thinking. Um, you know what? What are we doing? What are we prioritizing? How are we defining bias? How are we defining ethics? How are we approaching um, these concepts in general? And um, one of the the aspects that I that as part of the paper that i emphasized is it, i guess it's the nature the inherent nature of machine learning which is that we are continually predicting whether uh, it's health issues whether it's uh, socioeconomic issues whether it's who is who is going to be you know the best employee it's all about making predictions based on whatever data we get our hands on so The idea of relational thinking is kind of rethinking the whole idea of predicting uh, as something we need to to pause, to stop and pause and think. Instead of continually predicting, how about we we kind of take it easy and first analyze and think about the patterns that we are getting, trying to understand the, the, the reality and things as they are. As opposed to um, using whatever data we have as uh, evidence for our prediction or as input into into uh, our our predicting tool, so the one of the examples I give is uh, Cathy O'Neill in Weapons of Mass Destruction also mentions this is if you take uh, algorithms used in in policing in in the legal system uh, instead of Say recidivism algorithms instead of uh, striving to predict who is likely to reoffend or who is likely to commit crime or what area should be policed more. We use our tools or we we develop our tools in a way that lend themselves for us to understand why are uh, this group of uh, this demographic or this group of people coming up as higher risks. What can we do? How do we rehabilitate, say, prisoners instead of how do we catch them when they reoffend? So it's really switching mentality. It's thinking about how do we make the, the society or the better, the world a better place? How do we Uh, help people get back on their foot rather than how do we, you know, rather than playing a gacha, rather than how do we catch them again. But so thinking of kind of prioritizing understanding, you know, questioning uh, why do we find these patterns that we are finding and how do we improve that really kind of aligns with this relational thinking I've been, I've been talking about uh, as opposed to, you know, um, creating and building these uh, predictive tools.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting that there's multiple levels to this idea of prioritizing understanding there's, you know, as you know, individuals working in these areas, we should prioritize our understanding of the people involved in the, the scenarios Uh, that we're involved in and how the people are interacting and affected in these various scenarios. But also, you're also suggesting that we should prioritize, you know, the tools that we build to enhance our understanding as opposed to, you know, just spitting out more and more predictions.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I haven't yet seen many tools that aim to understand so much of what I come across is Always predictive tools, and I think prioritizing understanding really will will contribute to you know the larger great greater greatness of society. Again, this is not something you can formulate or you can uh, come up with a set of uh, steps that you can implement. It's mm-hmm. it's more of uh, kind of changing your habits, de- developing a different set of habits. It's something you continually keep in the back of your mind, uh, whether uh, you are an ethicist or an engineer uh, or a data scientist. Uh, so it's it's it really is really zooming out and looking at the, the, the larger picture. Uh, but also, it's it's not to oppose that we should uh, throw out all uh, implementable tools. Uh, we have uh, on uh, whether it's uh, fairness or, or uh, accountability or explaining explainability. Um, it's just that we have to also look at the, the larger picture. And I guess another aspect of relational ethics is uh, you might have these implementable tools. These, you might have this set of tools to, for, uh, to make your system uh, better. Uh, but, the idea is if you think of these concepts such as uh, fairness uh, or, or ethics or even your own set of solutions as something that are continually changing. So this is at, at the I guess this goes back to at the start I was talking about how the idea of embodied cognitive science uh, at, at its core uh comes from uh, systems thinking and, and cybernetics in the social sciences, and at the at the heart of it is that uh, not only can you uh, define cognition in isolation from others or in uh, in isolation from the tools you use or in isolation from the environment, uh, it's also that. Uh, whatever your definition of cognition or whatever your understanding of the person has to account for the nature of reality, which is that uh, it's never stable, it's never fixable, it's constantly changing. So, and it's very contextual. So uh, you are some, a a certain type of Personality at the moment with certain expected norms talking to me on the on the um, uh, on here, but some other time in some different context in some different environments, you are also slightly different person. So the, the underlying idea is what whatever concepts we are dealing with, whatever solutions we have, they cannot claim to to finalize things, they cannot stabilize this continually moving Nature of being and whatever is ethical in this context might not be ethical in other contexts. So, I think relational ethics uh, helps you leave whatever solution you have somewhat partially open so that you can reiterate, so you can revise and change with whatever new evidence or new data comes up your way. the next day or the next year. So uh, this treating of things as moving and changing really is fundamental. It's, it uh, helps us realize our solution now is only for now within a limited context, within a limited uh, you know, a, a environment. And uh, I think that's a really uh, important thing we can uh, all pay attention to. The
0: example you gave of, who is Sam in these different contexts makes me think a little bit about in linguistics the idea of code switching. I may speak in, in, in a particular way when I'm on the podcast and then when I'm at home I may speak in a slightly different way and when I'm out you know, in the neighborhood I might sl- speak in a slightly different way. And I haven't seen much in you know machine learning or NLP that tries to capture that or take uh, account of that. Do you have some examples of well examples of how you might envision machine learning systems you know if they were to follow uh, yeah. this aspect of relational
1: yeah so this is this is really difficult, and um I guess at the heart of. Um, a lot of, a lot of issues and, and so when, when you can assume things are stable and, uh, somewhat, you know, uh, you can grasp them with, uh, whatever tools or language you have, it's much easier to, to construct theories or to, con- to construct some sort of tool, uh, which is well, what I mean
0: The the stability, uh, you know, translates to the, you know, everything's coming from a uh, identical distribution, which is at the foundation of most of what we do in machine learning.
1: Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm not really a computer scientist. I, as I said at the beginning, I'm a cognitive scientist and I think mm-hmm. about cognition in persons and I don't know any uh, NLP tools or uh, machine learning approaches that account uh, for a uh, this continual change and contexts, uh, but also even within the cognitive science uh, movement, especially embodied cognitive science, which is trying to push the importance of uh, these uh, changes, uh, uh, you know, language and, and context is one of the things it struggles with is because it's difficult to formalize and, 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 and make up a, a provide something conclusive. But when you are underlying change, uh, it ends up dealing with a lot of theorizing as opposed to producing something, something you can model or something you, you can, you can formalize. Uh, so I guess it's, it's um, an existing tension. Again, it's, much better to, to think of it as a habit and to to acknowledge this uh, continual changing nature of things. Uh, in a sense, that acknowledgement makes you aware that uh, your tool or your solution or your theory is only as good as the the its a specification and the contexts, and uh, and that's. Acknowledgement further encourages you to leave, uh, not to conclude your your solution or your tool as uh, something finalizable, something that will be good all the times for all contexts, but something that you have to leave a little open, partially open, something that needs revision continually. Uh, so that's again for me. Uh, I what for me at the moment the the best one can do is uh, acknowledge this this change in context and and um, leave this uh, partial openness and uh, uh, embrace reiteration and and revision.
0: One of the other ideas in the paper is. That, or at least I, you know, I interpret it as that along the lines of the idea of prioritizing understanding over prediction. Uh, one of the ideas in the paper is that you know when we predict, it's often based on these very reductive uh, labels that we're applying to things. The examples you gave are you know successful versus not, criminal versus not, and you kind of point out that that is inherently problematic in in many cases.
1: Exactly, you can also look at a lot of algorithms within trying to categorize or identify gender identities, and I think that's one of the the most obvious cases where uh, the harm of doing so, the harm of categorization, uh, becomes very starkly clear, uh, because. Usually stereotypically and in most societies you would categorize uh, genders as uh, as uh, you know uh, male or female sometimes you might have uh, uh, bisexuals uh, but as we know gender identities are much more more than just those categories and not only uh, they are larger in number uh, that, those categories but we all know that they are fluid uh, someone that was um, bisexual uh, or trans uh, take a trans person for example uh, people change their uh, sexual and gender identities how do you then it's then it becomes easy to see how difficult it is for whatever algorithmic tools we are developing to to account for that change uh, but also, as we uh, develop that tool and categorize, kind of come up with these categories, in a sense, we are disadvantaging and excluding anybody that doesn't belong in those categories that we have created. This is where, again, uh, the most vulnerable are, uh, you know, impacted the most. Yeah, so it's it's, it's problematic in that regard.
0: I'm curious, what kind of reaction you've seen to the paper?
1: So at Europe's, it was overwhelmingly positive. I, I, uh, it was my first time in Europe's, and um, I went in thinking, oh, this is you know a machine learning AI conference. I'm just you know the outlier cognitive scientist slash ethicist. So <laughs> I, I went in feeling, oh, I'm not gonna fit very well uh, but it was really really positive and I was I even when I was when the announcement that uh, my paper had won the base paper uh, came I just I, I just could not believe it you know as, as a grad student you go to conferences you present a poster or whatever and some part of you sometimes you know deep down you think oh I might win you know I might have a chance for a best poster or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I went into New Rips, like, there's no chance. I'm just going to relax, <laughs> enjoy the dinner. It was a dinner party, and I was really shocked. And uh, so it's it's been really positive. Uh, I have presented similar ideas previously to very exclusively kind of very um, software engineer Um, machine learning deep learning researchers and people really are not interested in my ideas because people want something implementable something they can code into into you know something formal something they can use so what I'm asking is a reframing a rethinking and in a sense a changing of habits and uh, it's almost like an activism. It's like asking, what kind of society do you want to live in? So for some people, uh, that's really um, difficult and something they would rather not get involved in. But the more I interact with people, uh, but and also on Twitter, it's it's uh, really, really encouraging. People seem to, um, to like what I have to say. So I'm happy.
0: <laughs> really quickly before we... Wind down. You are in New York to present a more recent paper. I believe it's more recent paper that you yes. have worked on uh, on robot rights. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that paper?
1: Yes, it's unfortunate that the t- the title has robot rights because it really is not about robot rights. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, robot rights? Question mark. Uh, let's talk about uh, human welfare instead. So this paper, uh, I worked on it with my colleague uh, Yeli Van Dijk uh, from University of Twente. Uh, he's also uh, he he also comes from a distributed cognition, embodied cognitive science background, and we talk about this a lot on Twitter, and uh, we are constantly getting caught up in these Twitter debates whether uh, you know machines can be sentient or uh, whether sh- robots should be given rights, blah, blah, it goes on. And it's the same kind of pattern of interactions over and over and over again. And um, I think about five, four, four five months ago, I asked him on Twitter, how about we write a paper on this? And uh, writing the paper came really, really easy because we have the same background, we think alike, so the idea of the paper is, it has, uh, in a sense, uh, it's twofold. Uh, the first one is kind of philosophical. Uh, so we lay out uh, how robots are not the type of beings that can either be granted or denied rights. Uh, we lean on a lot of, uh, you know, embodied cocci, as I was saying earlier, uh, this notion of cognition as inherently social, inherently relational, people inherently, you know, value laden, constantly striving to make meaning of the world. Uh, so we use uh, that post-Cartesian uh, approach to to get at the heart of how, philosophically speaking, robots or any machine learning tools. Uh, or any machines at all are not the same beings as humans or even animals. And and then the, se- the second part, uh, we get at the urgent questions that AI ethics really need to focus because sometimes, not sometimes, most times it's really frustrating to hear uh, robot ethics classified as part of AI ethics. And for me personally, it comes across as worrying about future may happen, may not happen, may become sentient. Uh, a lot of it is really contempla- contemplation uh, and, and thinking ahead about the future. And it all that contemplation and philosophical musing, taking so much of the AI ethics space is just unfair. So um, a lot of the second part of our paper deals with uh, how Uh, the very idea of AI itself, whether it's, you know, computer vision, whether it's autonomous systems, uh, it's never autonomous. There is always humans in the loop. And uh, not only that, it's not possible without the the exploitive human labor, uh, whether it's uh, tagging raw data for that's going to be part of uh, an autonomous system. Or uh, some sort of image recognition. Even when you do uh, recaptchas, you are in a sense uh, kind of a being you. You you are putting in your own uh, unpaid labor into making machines better. Uh, so that the argument we made we make there is that AI systems are never autonomous, and they never will be. Uh, but in, in the argument of whether they are autonomous or not, we lose sight of the people who are underpaid, such as, you know, the, mechan- the Mechanical Turk uh, or microworkers. They, are ne- they never enter into, into the debate. We also touch upon, uh, you know, how the robot systems such as, you know, Roomba uh, or whatever, are invading private spaces as they roam around our houses and how that should be more uh, urgent and crucial as opposed to uh, some stereotypical uh, ho- humanoid such as Rob- uh, what's her name Sophia and uh, yeah and we we get a little bit on algorithmic injustice as well how the the least uh, privileged uh, the the most disfranchised are, the most impacted and how that should be the focus of AI ethics as opposed to, you know, hypothetical sentient beings. So that's mm. the that's the core of the paper. And yeah.
0: And there's been quite a bit of discussion about this one uh, on Twitter. And in fact, we're not going to be able to get into it very deeply, but I would encourage folks uh, to take their reactions to Twitter, is it fair to say that this one has been more controversial than the previous one?
1: It it appears it appears to be so. And uh, to be honest, when we wrote it, we wrote it as. Oh, when we have those uh, never ending conversations about rights again on Twitter, instead of repeating the conversation, we'll just have a paper to point to. Uh, But it has uh, provoked a lot of very strong reaction from uh, people both defending rights for robots and both uh, thinking it's really idiotic to to even discuss rights for robots.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, So apparently it's controversial. (laughs)
0: Interesting. People love their robots, I guess.
1: Yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, Ababa, it has been so great to have a chance to chat with you in more detail about what you're up to. Thanks so much for taking the time to share with us.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, It's been great. Thank
0: you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today.